Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello again and welcome to Foreplay Radio Sex Therapy. I'm your host, certified sex therapist Lori Watson, author of Wanting Sex Again, and blogger at Psychology Today and WebMD. And I have with me Dr. Adam Matthews, my co-host, who's a couples therapist, psychotherapist, and president of NCAMFT. Foreplay is dedicated to helping couples keep it hot. Each episode, we cover an aspect of sex that impacts your sex life and something that you can relate to. So if you find our discussions helpful, please give us a review on iTunes or Stitcher. We would love it if you would tell a friend about us. You can find us also on the web at foreplayrst.com. And if you have a comment or a topic that you'd like us to talk about, we'd love to hear from you. Please send them to us at info at foreplayrst.com. Thanks for listening. Now on to today's topic. This podcast is part of a presentation given by Lori Watson and Adam Matthews at the North Carolina Licensed Marriage and Family Therapy Association Annual Conference. Most of what I see as problematic sexually between a couple is the power struggle. I mean, we can fix the sexual dysfunctions fairly easily, honestly. I mean, it's getting them to those exercises, you know, that's the hard part, because dynamically how they're operating is often a function of power in the relationship. I think understanding there's some where there's actually, I think couples are intentionally doing that to each other. I think there's also times where there's the perception that they are doing that with each other, where either he wants it or she's withholding it or vice versa, where there's the perception of that. And that's where I think the understanding of how they are trying to use sex, how they view sex is so important because sometimes I agree with you that that's the, that's the impetus they're trying to exert power in the relationship or they're trying to i think for men sometimes they are trying to feel adequate in in the relationship and that's the one area that they feel they can always succeed at sometimes i think that's the case and we have to address that there's other times where i think what's useful about me understanding a woman's perspective and what it's like from her end and for a man as well that i can then kind of dispel some of the assumptions that they're making in regards to how their partner is is pursuing sex so we're going to talk about the pursuer distancer and the pursuer, or the sexual pursuer and the sexual distancer. And I'll start at the bottom and we'll kind of come back to that point. But in attachment theory, we're managing closeness between us. And oftentimes we have similar needs. We need closeness and connection and we also need space, respect for our individuality and some distance. And there's a balance between that. And many people fight this out on the sexual playing field. Oftentimes, sexual pursuers, they they feel empty and they feel out of control. A male sexual pursuer will say, she's the low libido partner. She has all the control. She tells us when we're going to have sex, when we're not going to have sex. She's the one who maintains all the control. And he feels very much like he can't do anything about this. He worries about being starved. But oftentimes, ironically, the sexual distancer feels controlled. 
my partner just wants to control me. They want to they want sex all the time. I feel like I can't move, I can't breathe. You know, I think one of the issues we talked about the partner who wants the playful sexual encounters all day long. You know, what is the complaint that you hear your patients make about why they don't do that? Why aren't they playful sexually during the day? My sense is if I send a text, if I hug them, if I'm affectionate, if I, you know, wink we're going to have to go upstairs and go to bed right then. That's usually the sexual distancer, right? They're so afraid that, that to participate is to say, I'm ready right now. And ironically, they feel control. They feel like they're exhausted because they, they never can please their partner. They, their partner never gets out of bed and says, that was fantastic. I mean, control is a, is a big deal. One well, person and so, is... And so they're reacting to that control. They're reacting right? to that. They're either reacting to the lack of control or they're reacting to the feeling that they're being controlled, trying to move, trying to either regain some control or keep from being controlled, right? And so there, you can see the reactions that are playing a part there. Yeah. So sexual pursuers, as, as any pursuer, is the person who initiates. They're the ones who move toward their partner. Oftentimes in dysfunctional relationships... A move toward our partner is met with a response of a bump back. So it's like South Pole magnets on a rod. I move towards you, you bump back. Sometimes the distancer does come forward a little bit. And ironically, in, in less, more rigid relationships, less functional relationships, the pursuer will actually take a, a step back. I had a couple who... They've been coming to me, and he has prostate cancer, and she has been the sexual pursuer their whole relationship. She's wanted more sex, lots of sex. It is absolutely the way she feels love. I mean, she's just oriented that way. Lots of struggle for many, many years about this, and she is terrified of what this prostate cancer will do for them. So she says, you know, I've initiated, I've begged, I've pleaded, you know, and now he doesn't feel as much, you know, he can't get an erection, you know, all of this stuff is going on and I'm really, really mad. And she kind of came to a point that said, I'm done. I'm absolutely done initiating. And I'm thinking of leaving the marriage, which these, this was a pretty solid couple. And he's like, I, I can't believe you even said that. Like, to me, it's just so injurious that you would say you would divorce me over sex. And she said, it's that important to me. And now with prostate cancer and the lack of erections, you know, I, I don't even know how, how to think about this. And they had had lots of sex for many years where she had kind of given up. He had come toward her, they had had sex, but they had just kind of had quickies. And this thing had gone back and forth between them. But this time she put her foot down. So he made a huge effort and, and an enormous change in his life. He started initiating with her. He started touching her cuddling with her, giving her orgasms, even when he didn't feel like being sexual, he would initiate sexual times with her and playfully and lovingly, you know, give her sexual release and pleasure. And this is the, you know, the power struggle, right? She came in after all these changes and she said, but he's not having sex with me. He won't take the shot that gives him an erection. And without sexual intercourse, I'm not fulfilled. I'm not complete. And I was like, okay, but 
five minutes ago you were having sexual intercourse that wasn't very loving and you weren't complete then. It can't be sexual intercourse, right? It has to be something between the two of you, his desire for you. And she was like, you know, she kind of let that sink in finally and she's like, you're right. And, and we talked about that this was dynamic, that it was her hunger that kept being activated because he had really made significant changes. He was different initiating with her. You know, he had become the sexual pursuer and suddenly she was saying, you know, it's not enough, still not enough, demanding more. So the sexual distancer typically is the responder. In heterosexual relationships, frequently the female is more responsive sexually than she is initiating. In my lesbian couples, what I see is often one of them is more pursuant sexually than the other one. So even though they both maybe have low T, you know, one of them kind of takes the, positionally feels more oriented sexually. In our gay couples, our homosexual couples that we see, we really don't see this fought so much over desire and frequency. We see pursuer distance or dynamics, but sex is not usually the place they're fighting it out over. I mean, in different ways. Between them, it's, it's often good and responsively good. Sometimes it can be about outside, you know, maybe go, stepping outside the relationship and, and those kinds of things that feel distancing. But oftentimes between the couple, sex works fairly well. Yes? Would you talk a little bit more about what you said about her hunger was the problem rather than intercourse or not intercourse? Yeah. She came from a background, a family of origin background, that was like her needs had not been met. And so she carried that into the relationship. And indeed, he did not meet her needs, in my opinion, sexually very well for 20 years. But some of what left her was so much heat about this and, and the inability to see how he was now meeting her needs was this backlog of pain and hunger from her childhood. And once she kind of got a hold of it's, you know, like she kind of saw it through my eyes which was easier than him arguing with her, but I'm really, really different, you know. Yes, I can't have an erection right now, but, you know, I'm getting there. You know, it was sort of like she was insistent on struggling over sex, even though it had changed so much. And the good news was I really thought he was proceeding in terms of his erectile ability, given his report about what was happening. I, I imagine that they would be able to have sexual intercourse. I will say something I learned is the shot that men can take to ensure an erection has two drugs in it. One of them is very, very painful and stinging. And it, it did give him an erection and it did allow them to have intercourse. And I didn't realize that you could separate out those meds. I went back to the urologist. I'm like, what can we do? Because this is killing him. And unfortunately, during his post-recovery time, he would take the shots to ensure an erection, which is important in prostate recovery, and he essentially got traumatized by it, you know, because it was so painful. Uh, not just the shot itself, but the, the after effect of the medication. So anyway, we're fixing that. So, Lori, I want to make sure we have some time to get some questions. So which are yeah. the important ones on okay. the pursuer distancer that we, you would want to highlight? You know, I would say that sexual pursuers are improvers. You know, they get out of bed and they're like, how can we make it better? This was better than last time. This is, 
you know, we should make it hotter in this way, and that's completely mystifying to the sexual distancer who is very present in the moment. It was, it was good. It was nice. I liked it. Why are we talking about it? You know, why, why do we need to make it better? Why can't it just be good enough the way it was? Oftentimes I tell the sexual pursuer, get out of bed, say that was great, and button up. Don't say anything more. They often crave intensity, and I think that the sexual distancer fears intensity. So, so the sexual pursuer wants the earth to move. They want something to happen that's an 11 on a scale of 1 to 10. And that is very fearful for sexual distancers. They often are avoidant not of their partner, but of the very experience. Orgasm for some sexual distancers is an intense experience. Being touched genitally is very, very intense for them, vulnerable and intimate. And so they're not necessarily trying to control their partner. They're trying to control intensity. And, and that's how I talk about it with them. So I'm going to leave you there. I can send you these notes, too, and I will, but because we really have six days' worth of questions that we want to get to. First one that we got, how do you address sexual issues when one or both partners has experienced childhood sexual trauma? This is, this is something that's just incredibly common. Unfortunately, trauma is common, right? Um, and so we're dealing with that. And there's, the first thing that I would say is that you have to get both of the partners to go slow. Their sexual relationship is not going to be solved by them just doing it, right? A lot of times, the person that's been traumatized doesn't even realize how much they are disassociating from the sexual experience, particularly if there was any kind of sexual trauma that, of the way that they are having sex that reminds them of how they were abused, right, mm -hmm. or how of the trauma that happened. For women, I have a lot of women who, if they were raped, if they um, were assaulted in their genitals, then any kind of touch down there is going to automatically start to remind them of the trauma. But most of the time, I don't know your experience with this, most of mine do not even realize that it's happening. They, they can talk about the trauma and they can talk about the sex with their partner, um, but there's a disconnect between, say, when their partner touches them, they feel re-traumatized or they have a, or they have a um, dissociative ex experience. And so a lot of times they're checking out. So helping them understand what is happening is one of the first steps and getting their partner to understand so that they can go slower. Um, yeah. For their partner, their partner is not going to understand this experience at all. If there's no trauma with them, if they haven't experienced trauma, they're not going to understand the experience that their partner is having around sex. And they can be really offended or get their feelings hurt a lot by the fact that this is, ha this is the experience because they don't intend harm to their partner. They don't intend to re-traumatize, but that experience is happening nonetheless. Yeah, but dissociation, I think, is really important um, to, to bear in mind. I probably do not suggest stopping the sexual relationship during recovery because that puts the marriage at jeopardy. I also think that we can teach couples to have a safe place for when the traumatized partner is dissociating or has a traumatic memory emerge. So a safe place, uh, one exercise is, I think it's Wendy Maltz, who suggests coming into essentially a cuddle with head to heart. And, and we ha I have them do that first to see if that feels like safety. Sometimes the heartbeat of our partner can be very reassuring, bring us back into the present and in the moment. I have them hold, talk about it, stop that particular sexual encounter, but not necessarily stop the sexual relationship during recovery. Okay. What are your thoughts about swinging an open marriage? Good thing my husband's here today. <laughs> um, exactly I mean, I'm not exactly <laughs> sure if this is a proposition or um, what, but... Um, 
So, I mean, I do work with people who are swingers and in open marriages, not as often, but I think that, you know, actually, I should probably let my husband answer this, but he says, you know, like, one woman is complicated enough. How in the world can you think about, you know, a, a further complication? And I think that swinging in open marriages is an effort to deal with sexual monotony and boredom, right? It's, it's, that's what they're trying to resolve. But with it comes magnificent problems of emotional and sexual complexity. So they're trying to solve one problem. In my experience, it brings on a raft of others. Yeah, I would say just like any other relationship, there are boundaries that, are, that have to be in place. Like I think boundaries are super important in relationships. And so when you add another component, I think personally, I think they're more difficult but I think that that's one of the ways that you have to start to manage that. If that's going to be how you're going, what you're going to pursue in your relationship, then one of the jobs as a therapist, I think, is to help the couple define what the boundaries are, how they're going to stick to them, and how they're going to honor them because they become a little, they become more fluid than just in a standard diet. Right? More from Lori Watson and Adam Matthews at the North Carolina Licensed Marriage and Family Therapy Association annual conference is coming up next on Foreplay Radio Sex Therapy. Wanting Sex Again, How to Rediscover Desire and Heal a Sexless Marriage by Certified Sex Therapist Lori Watson. Each chapter is designed to fix one of the problems that cause low libido, from early marriage through the childbearing years, even all the way through menopause. I've also had men read it and tell me that for them it was the most hopeful thing they read about resolving sexual problems. Look for Wanting Sex Again on Amazon.com. You can also talk to Lori Watson for therapy in person or via Skype. I offer couples counseling and sex therapy, and I think about both aspects of the relationship, emotional intimacy and sexual technique, and that combination together helps marriages be happy. Weekend couples intensives are also offered. Improve your sex and improve your relationship with Awakening Center for Couples and Intimacy. Find out more at awakenloveandsex.com. Awaken what's possible. It is one of my great joys in life to be able to really help individuals and couples find strength in their relationships and really find hope again. Licensed marriage and family therapist, Dr. Adam Matthews from Matthews Counseling. I work with a wide variety of issues, including depression and anxiety, marital issues, issues with adolescence. I believe that therapy should be designed around you, that it should be personalized to who you are and to your unique situation. Therapy is available in office, online, and by phone. I want therapy to be comfortable for everyone. At our office, you'll find that we sit around a fireplace in deep, comfortable chairs, look at the problem differently, and offer practical solutions for you to take home and utilize outside of the therapy room. Schedule today and rediscover hope. You can find me on the web at matthewscounseling.net. Matthews with one T. You can contact us through email or phone and find a lot of resources on our website, matthewscounseling.net. Welcome back to Foreplay Radio Sex Therapy. The one here, how can a couple include spontaneity when they are going through infertility treatments and have already experienced multiple miscarriages? Great question. I think it's, yeah, sure. How can a couple include spontaneity 
when they are going through infertility treatments and have already experienced multiple miscarriages. I think any time that a couple is either trying to have a baby or has had trauma around that, I think you, I think we could include stillbirths in this. Um, we could include not just infertility treatments, but just a span of time where your tr- couple is trying to get pregnant and has not been able to, as this is one of the times where sex really takes a hit because it becomes it becomes work for both parties, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, it becomes regular, it becomes very routine. So spontaneity, how we keep spontaneity up is important. My initial thought is that you have to take sex out of the work realm. Like you have to have them, most of the time they are only having sex on routine. They're only having sex at specific times. And so at some point they have to, they have to begin to take it out, out of that one category. It's just begun to fall into that category in their minds of it's only for reproduction. And so you have to move it into a category where they're not having sex to try to get pregnant or um, where that's even a concern. Sex vacations is probably one thing that I would recommend to a couple like that, is that there are times where they are going to get away specifically, they're going to break up that routine, and they're going to go specifically away to someplace that they enjoy, someplace that where they're not even going to talk about pregnancy, they're not even going to talk about trying to get pregnant. What else would you say? I mean, I think it's complicated, and I think that it often leaves lasting problems in the sex life, which is something to remember. But to me, I don't have any quick tricks on that one. I mean, it's dealing with grief, you know, and we know that a miscarriage, a stillbirth, you know, brings tremendous grief. Dealing with angst about will I be able to have a child or more children, you know, coping with those things and talking about the actual sexual encounter. What happened? You know, why was it so boring? Why did it feel so tense? You know, many times there are conflicts internally about starting a family. You know, and we're dealing with those as, you know, sex is on demand. So I think it's a processing issue. One thing I'd add that you highlighted that I didn't say is that I think the inability to have children right away, that's that expectation that you think is you're going to have sex, you're, you don't anticipate problems, that there's a loss there as well. Even if you don't experience a miscarriage or you don't experience a stillbirth, there's still a loss there and you have to deal <coughs> with that grief component, that failed expectation, and begin to separate it from the sex itself. Yeah. Right? Absolutely. When does pornography become a problem for couples and sex? It's a huge problem in my mind and and different than when I was first a therapist 27 years ago or 28 years ago. I mean, I would rarely have a young man come in with erectile dysfunction. Now we have scads of young men who make appointments because they have ED. And what has happened is, what I believe, is they're using so much pornography that they become accustomed to having ejaculation and release after a very, very high level of arousal uh, looking at multiple pictures. There's a Psychology Today article, not mine, but says 300 vaginas before breakfast. And, and many times when men view porn, they're looking at image after image after image, which heightens the excitement and dopamine in their brain and then they release and have an orgasm. Yeah, but it doesn't give them the same release as coupled sex. Right? I mean, it's not, it's not exactly the same, which is why that buildup, that buildup, that buildup, there is a release, but it's not exactly the same as, as in coupled sex. Right, but I also think it's hard to have that kind of excitement about a soul partner that is very familiar. And so sometimes, you know, they just lose it. So that's problematic. I also see that Many times, men who have low desire have partner-specific low desire. So they have plenty of desire, 
They often siphon it off into using pornography exclusively. I do not want to negotiate this difficult transaction with a female partner about sex. I don't want to have to keep talking to you about it. I'm a more avoidant person in general. Intimacy is difficult for me. I will manage it. I will literally take sex into my own hands using pornography. So, I mean, I think when pornography is a substitute for intimacy, very problematic. Some men, I don't know if they absolutely know, but I think it's hard to overestimate what a naked woman picture feels like on a male brain. I think, by and large, I, I, I rarely see women who are addicts, who are sex addicts, or who are using pornography to some extent that is worrisome. A lot of times, if a woman is a self-described sex addict, there's you know, probably borderline bipolar issues, whereas I do see men who use pornography excessively, problematically in their lives that are not necessarily personality disordered. Yes. How would we address it in the military culture where couples spend a lot of time apart? I mean, obviously, it's, it's a substitute. I mean, the military in general has so many problems, my heart absolutely breaks in terms of the separation of couples, the affairs, the prostitution, um, managing sexual drive and desire away from your partner is very problematic. So, you know, how would I say, should they not, I don't say people shouldn't use pornography. Pornography can be problematic. I think it's problematic when it turns them away from each other. Yeah. Right. When it's not when they're not turning towards. So if as as a man, I think it's problematic as well. Um, and that the issues that come up because of pornography are greater than the gains that come up when a couple uses pornography. But in the specific example of the military, like we're going to talk about other ways that you can have your desire met. Um, I mean, we live in an age where technology helps in this. It doesn't hurt. It doesn't hurt this. It, there's some helps there. Um, and so they may have to expand their view of what um, sex is and how they can connect sexually with their partner over a distance, um, either through phone sex, internet, like whatever, um, whatever it is. But if the pornography <coughs> in that situation in a couple that's either distance or in the military, it's very hard for it to be a turning toward each other, right? It's very hard for that boundary to be held enough for it not to lead to something that's more problematic than it is helpful. And I might add that post-traumatic stress syndrome and traumatic brain injury <laughs> Both of those have a 70% impact negatively on sex. And so I taught down at Fort Bragg and to the psychiatric facility there, and oftentimes the partner is at home waiting for this fabulous reunion, and the soldier comes home without any drive. Most of the time it impacts them with lowered libido, not hyperlibido. Sometimes hyperlibido, but oftentimes lowered libido. So, is it a myth that sex therapists have great sex lives? Never, Derek. <laughs> My husband put thumbs up. I think we work hard at sex. We understand how deeply important sex is. That makes a difference. Yeah. And you're thinking about sex all day. And I'm thinking about sex all day. Yeah, absolutely. Um, how do you help couples when one partner finds the other physically unattractive, i.e. overweight, etc.? Okay. I mean, really this good is, question. This is, so, this is so common, and a lot of times this is where in, you're seeing a couple and then individually, hopefully they don't bring it up in front of the other. I think that they, this is a hard issue to, to move into, and there has to be some tact around it. I think that's one of the things that we talk about a lot too is that there has to be 
there has to be some tact in how they're going to bring it up. I think one of the things, there's a couple things that I would think, one is, is just expectations over how your partner is going to change over time, how their body is going to change over time. A lot of these complaints can come from men after pregnancy. It's going to come from women after a man has let himself go and not, you know, just not stayed in shape or other things like that. But I think the, the expectation of what our bodies are going to look like over time has to be realistic. That doesn't mean that you can't have that complaint and ask, and ask your partner for, to do more in that area. But I think we have to be sure that our expectations about what is going to happen over time is realistic, right? I have a tag on to that because there's been research about how women perceive men after they've gone off of birth control and that their desire for certain types of men are completely different. Mm-hmm. So how would you address that as well? There's a study that's been done, and I, I read the study, I don't remember the result, that women off birth control are, are attracted to different kinds of men than they were on birth control. Uh, do you remember the results of the study? I don't remember the results, but other than, like... I think what you're getting at is that there is a component of sexual attraction that is physical, but I think there is a component that is mental and emotional as well. So in avoidant people, turning off sexual desire is a strategy to create space. So let's say it's a man who says, you know, I'm married. In fact, I had a couple call me yesterday. They had heard me on a radio show and uh, another, a different radio show. And they said, you know, he, they had four children. He said, I'm just not attracted to her anymore. I don't ever want to have sex with her. And there was no particular physiological change. It wasn't that. It was, but what came to it was this was the way he avoided things. And what I said is, you know, I, I don't think that's the end game. You know, I think that psychologically you might look inside. What am I afraid of in sex? What, what did I know about intimacy and connection growing up? Where are my attachment wounds? I mean, I think it's very complex. I don't think it's just chemical. I mean, certainly, I think, you know, it's, it's better if people stay in shape and, you know, step it up for each other. And, and sometimes that can be a comment. Often with men, that's an easier comment, I find, if I say to a man, you know what, dude, first of all, that, you know, 20 extra pounds you're carrying is going to impact your erections in five years. That's always motivation. And second, you know, she kind of seems to indicate that she's more visually oriented than some women. And so her desire is for a fit body, and, and he's like, oh, you mean we'll be having more sex? Okay, well, I'm going on a diet. You know, not as easy culturally when a man needs to say to a woman, you know, I, I think I'd be more attracted to you if you lost that 20 pounds. Uh, it's a little dicier. Yeah, I think you also have to look at it. where's the decline in their emotional connection. I think that's one of the things that you're talking mm-hmm. about. Are you, really, are you really emotionally connected? Is there that base level of friendship that's there um, that is the basis of, of that attraction as well? But then I think there are some cases where it's not just about the physical attraction. It's about the self-care that has gone into yourself, right? There is an element where I think a lot of couples come in thinking that relationship is 50-50 as opposed to 100-100. And so if either one of the partners, I think, has kind of checked out, if there's depression, if there's anxiety, if there's other areas that are really stressful that they have taken on, that they have kind of just let themselves go, right? I think one of the most attractive things, I think for both men and women, is somebody that is confident and takes care of themselves either way. That doesn't mean that you have to be real thin. That doesn't mean that you have to have, you know, um, bulging pecs and biceps, right? Like we're not, I don't think there's some kind of 
epitome there that we're shooting for, but I do think that there is a sense of how do you take care of yourself? How do you begin to pour into yourself so that you have enough to be able to give back to your partner? And I think exercise, take, eating well, taking care of yourself in that way is, an, is an a vital part of that um, to be able to, to talk about attraction there. Really delicate topic though, right? No, absolutely. What's the best way for couples to re-engage in sex after infidelity or a lull in sex? I think in terms of infidelity, there needs to be quite a bit of processing and oftentimes healing. I also think that couples might be engaging in sex and we don't realize it after infidelity, or they engage in sex sooner than we think the betrayed party is ready for. So we, we need to think about that. One thing I think about as a therapist is a re-engagement sexually after potential promiscuity or an affair is are they safe? Are there STDs? Are they using protection? You know, if you know, one person comes to me and says, I found out my husband's with prostitutes and blah, 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 and I'm sleeping with him, I'm like, you shouldn't be sleeping with him. You need to go get tested. You need to wear a con- you know, make him wear a condom. And she's like, oh, I, I don't want to do that. I mean, there's a lot of passivity in that sometimes. I think reengaging with sex in a more classic pattern would be, you know, the person who stepped outside of the sexual relationship, man or woman, or woman or woman, and dealing with remorse, sort of an openness, like opening their phone, opening their computer, their passwords, a complete cutoff from that person, and then a re-engagement sexually talking about it. I think the injury can be my partner stepped out sexually because I wasn't good enough. I wasn't good enough in bed. I wasn't attractive enough. You know, yeah, so, so some often, of that needs to be healed. And so often when the, when the perception is that they stepped outside of the relationship because um, sex wasn't good in the relationship, a lot of times they throw themselves back into the sexual relationship with a lot of renewed energy. And oftentimes I think too quickly. I had one client who would talk about she felt that way that that's what happened with her husband. And so she just started to have sex with him just every time he wanted it. And probably more than that as well. But and then she would just cry afterwards, right? And it was just so is so injurious for her in that way. And so I think one of the things that those couples have to understand is that um, the person that stepped outside of the relationship, when they come back and decide they want to reengage um, the relationship, they have processed it already much faster than the person that the injured party that has found out about it. And so talking about how they're going to reengage sex has to be a process where they understand that that's happened where the, the person that stepped outside of the relationship slows down and perhaps the person that um, is injured speeds up just a little bit, but they have to understand that that process, they're going through two different, completely distinct processes, especially in regards to sex. Yeah. Hear more from Lori Watson and Adam Matthews at the North Carolina Licensed Marriage and Family Therapy Association Annual Conference on upcoming episodes of Foreplay Radio Sex Therapy. Thanks for listening. Hey, help us stay on top here at Foreplay. We'd love it if you would subscribe and share it with your friends. And please take one sec and rate and review us. Thanks so much. the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death 
in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device, or play on PC through Facebook games.